The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. I think you're in Bakersfield. Am I right? I am, Stephen, live from Bakersfield. I know. I, I just wanted to give you a chance to say that. I know. I like saying it. It's, it's fun. You know, it's, uh, we've, as, as you point out, you know, we have three law schools now and we are going through orientation for the fall at, because our classes start August 14th, as you well know, because I do, I'm I'm getting those, uh, I'm getting those memos and reminders. (laughs) You'll be teaching criminal law in just a couple of weeks. But anyway, we're ro- doing a rotation. The the administrative staff is we're three days in Bakersfield today doing orientation. We'll be in your fair city of San Luis Obispo Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then we'll be back Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, with some split staffing to do Monterey College Law. Excellent. Three I need to make a point of uh, visiting the Bakersfield campus. Uh, you will well. You will like it over here. They're very excited about. This school, it's our first time to enroll a first-year class. The class is full. Our staff, uh, our faculty are on site. Uh, we've had meetings with the students and the faculty. It's everybody's, it's just that energy and excitement of a, a excellent program. I can hear the bell ringing as we speak. <laughs> so speaking of school, we are going to talk about a topic we have discussed in the past and uh, there was great listenership interest in this one. I know we got a lot of emails after talking about it, and that topic is school resource officers. Yeah, that's right. I'm suggested that we do this mainly because, as you said, people are interested. This strikes home. I mean, all of us have local schools of, and we're talking in this case not about graduate schools and colleges, we're specifically talking about K-12 schools. Public schools. Public schools. And uh, the question has been out there of what role should police and private security officers play in the maintenance of security in public schools these days? Uh, Is it the the school district's role to, as they've historically done – maintain security and deportment and behavior and use the traditional uh, 
uh, roles of, of counseling and in-school suspension, weekend school. And it, you probably didn't have to do any of that when you were a student, did you, Stephen? I, I did uh, a combination of uh, <laughs> private school, Catholic school, and then back into public school, Mitch. So I've actually got a good backdrop and history to look at. So you're not going to tell us what happened to you in Catholic school with the ruler or any of that stuff. We're going to uh, be buried in the background. I can share a couple ruler stories. Yes, I can. But I won't. Okay, good. Well, I was getting nervous there for a minute. Anyway, but the, the question then is, in and frequently sometimes these large urban schools, uh, there have been unfortunate incidents of, of violence. And the question is, well, should the school, is there responsibility for the school to go beyond just having teachers and principals and counselors, should they have what are called school resource officers who may be a police officer from the community, may also be a private security guard. And there's federal money that's available. And all of this came back up as kind of the long introduction is because uh, Salinas is in our backyard and the new police chief from Salinas, who both of you and I have met, uh, has proposed that the city of Salinas go back after an available federal grant of about $3.2 million. That would pay for bringing school resource officers back into the Salinas School District. And that has raised an entire public discussion of, will that help or hurt the objective of making schools safer? Yeah, and I think what that's done specifically in Monterey County, Mitch, is it's uh, once again put the spotlight on the pros and cons of having school resource officers. And we have talked about that topic before, and this gives us an opportunity to expand upon it uh, against the backdrop of grant monies being uh, aimed and devoted to this, because I think what we'll get into is whether there is sufficient training and protocols in place to ensure that uh, everything is is run sort of according to um, a rule system, I think. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. And what, what I think you find out as you start reading a little more about this is many of us will just have a, an inherent reaction. Oh, how could this be bad? How could mo- Most of us feel that you pass the police officer standing on the corner or a police car parked in the parking lot and you go, ah, I feel a little safer. They're there. You know, that's going to be a deterrent as well as they're there in case something bad happens. All right. So, you, know, you may have this that inherent reaction say, well, how could this be bad? Well, as we're going to talk about, there's discussion of are those police officers, when you take the same person, put them into a school setting, and we're talking anywhere from you know kindergarten up through high school, do they have the same mindset? Do they have the proper training? Do they have a clear understanding of what their objective is? that may be completely different of what you do inside the walls of a, a high school versus what you're doing when you're out patrolling the general neighborhood. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a good way of framing it, Mitch. And I think it helps probably to set up uh, a, a definition for a school resource officer. And I think we could uh, safely use this definition. They are sworn law enforcement officers who are responsible for providing security and crime prevention services in the public school system, typically. Now, I've mentioned and referenced sworn law enforcement because in many cases, uh, the 
school resource officers are active members of law enforcement or recently retired members of law enforcement. But I think what we'll get into is it may well be that some of them do not actually have uh, what's called post-training experience, police officer standards training. And that might be one of the, the issues we want to bat around a little. I think you're right. So so the numbers are, and, and these aren't necessarily exactly accurate to the today, but within the last year or so, there are about 43,000 school resource officers and an additional almost 40,000 security guards that work in the approximately 80, 84,000 public schools in the United States. That's a lot of folks. We're talking about over 80,000 officers that are currently in schools in 84,000 public schools. So it's not a, that's a fairly high coverage, 84,000 schools, 80,000 school resource officers. But just as you just pointed out, Stephen, of all the states that have these, only 12 states have specific laws that require training, specific training for school security staff. And that training usually doesn't include anything special about the education population, we're talking K-12, child psychology, teenage psychology, cultural sensitivity, and, and one that we've actually seen in the news in recent years, thank goodness not recently, but dealing with students who have disabilities uh, and how to, and mental health issues, which as a population we know, they have a percentage of those issues just like the adult population. And so that's, that's really the question. That, we've had other issues on our show talking about disabilities and the special the training it takes to, to deal with individuals, the special laws that are in place to deal with those individuals. And so the question comes right back to the front. Well, should you be putting a, a police officer in a school setting and not provide them with the resources of this kind of special training? Yeah, and you know, Mitch, um, fortunately, uh, I'm able to cite to a situation in San Luis Obispo County where the school resource officers are very well trained and the lines of communication are very very robust and there is a sharing of information and certainly protocol Um, we've talked about it in the past you'll recall we had uh, one of my colleagues uh, Cheryl Manley who heads our juvenile uh, division in the DA's office Uh, and I've been present at some of those meetings and it's a I certainly had the impression that there was collaboration uh, among all of the student resource officers and an open sharing of information. So uh, if there's to be a model, uh, I would say that San Luis Obispo County uh, is a good one. So that's, uh, I, I know that came off, you know, in the form of a plug, but I can, I can attest to the fact that there's uh, a very good system in place in San Luis Obispo County. No, and I'm pleased you brought that up because uh, you know, just before we go on to the break, let's kind of set this up because let's talk the positive side of this. It's not just the, the physical safety issue of having a, a uniformed officer on site, but there's no question that those who talk about the benefits of school resource officers say that the, the schools who do it well, the communities really who do it well, not just the schools, do what you've just suggested. And then that pos- person becomes a model that students see. Not, not someone they're antagonized by, not someone they're afraid of, but a model of someone they see 
can be helpful and you could go to with an issue that you provide the safety and that that model bridges the gap between the police and the community and that's what we've heard about in community policing right isn't that the whole purpose and we've had the police chiefs on to talk about that in the past yeah absolutely Mitch and I think at the forefront here and a main issue is going to be the learning environment you know the sanctity of the learning environment and whether or not the presence of uh, school resource officers fosters the learning environment or if in some way it, it may stifle that environment. And that gets into the pros and cons. And I know that uh, one of the articles that was written out of, and I can't—I don't remember the publication, but it related to the grant issue out of Monterey County, right? Yes, both, I think both the Monterey Herald and the Salinas Californian uh, had articles on it. Okay. And, and yeah, when we come back, you'll you'll want to talk about that because we'll talk about the con side as well. That is, if that, the existence of a police officer versus not having a police officer, the concern is it accelerates the pipeline of what they call school to jail pipeline. Right. And I think one of those articles also may have highlighted uh, what I'll call a, a disparate uh, or disproportional impact, perhaps, uh, certain students maybe being singled out um, may have been one of the claims or the, the arguments, I think, maybe against having stu- uh, school resource officers. That's right. No, no question about it. Um, so the, the argument on that, to kind of set that up for post-break, is that there's statistics that show, and I'm just looking at one of the articles right here, that where there's schools that have school resource officers, the the example given, and whether it's true or not in this specific example, this will outline the concern that you know a traditional white student gets angry, throws the book at another student, or throws a book at a as a teacher, and they get sent to the office. If there's no school resource officer, or it's the white student that's being counseled, the parents get called in, they get in school suspension, and they get you know, sent home for the day. A student of color does exactly the same thing in exactly the same scenario. And the concern is in situations where there's a school resource officer, that student ends up being taken down to the police station and there's a whole different set of discipline and the possibility of a record being started and a bad and a bad uh, pathway being set. That's the argument. Okay. Uh, School and, to, school and rather to. than rather than challenge the empirical data that may exist on that front, Mitch, I think the better uh, course to take for us is going to be the issue of training overall. Exactly. Uh, because I don't think we really want to spar over the empirical data on that issue. Uh, and I'm adequate to, to really defend either side, but it yeah. does raise the conversation that I think we want to have. Okay, yeah, yeah. good. So let's uh, pick up on the topic of uh, the need for consistency and training uh, as our next topic uh, after the break. We're about to go into a break and we can talk about consistency and protocol because I think that is very, very important. Uh, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We are talking about school resource officers, pros and cons of having school resource officers. We'll return to that topic when we come back from this very short break. Mm-hmm. 
College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are talking about school resource officers, and those would be officers who are assigned to public schools for a number of reasons, and we want to expand on the topic of uh, pros and cons of the role of school resource officers, Mitch. Yeah, and, and let me pick up just for a minute on on what I thought was a great comment you made about the the challenge of trying to apply any statistics to these issues. First of all, I think it's understudied. And so if there's a a lack of of objective studies in enough schools on enough of the issues, it is easy for someone to pick one study and say, aha, this points out to be the problem. I don't think that exists here. I think it's understudied. I do not think there's compelling statistics. But what the statistics provide 
is a great reason to have the conversation in the community to address it, just like you explained they're doing in, in San Luis Obispo. You get the district attorney's office, the police chief, the school district. You get everybody together representing the community and say, how do we want to deal with this in our community? And you come up with some school policies. Everybody understands what the procedure is. Everybody understands what the implications of taking certain actions would be. And and that's what I the point you made is, which I think is great. Good, and I'm, I'm glad you're endorsing that because I didn't want to get into the stats and the empirical data necessarily and, and debate it. Um, you know what's interesting, Mitch, and I think we can use this as a comparison perhaps as we move forward. Uh, in a graduate study or college study environment, it's interesting that there are much greater or better definitions of security and concern. So I'm wondering about the value of looking at college campuses and security and seeing if some of those protocols can transfer over by way of the sharing of information into uh, grammar schools and high schools in the public school system. So I think yes in the area, this just be my two cents worth on it, absolutely yes on the procedure standpoint because I do think that it strikes me that the, the relationship between uh, community police and campus police are usually uh, very well defined and they tend to work well together. That So that that linkage, I think, is a great model. What's different is that the campus police are still dealing with primarily an adult population. That's that, true. That's a, an alarming difference. Good point. And then, and then so the bridge between how you deal with the individual and their behavior I don't think is that different. You know, you're talking about with a 18, 19, 24-year-old. That's not all that different than a community police officer is going to deal with in some circumstances. Now you put them in place with a with a large physical. Uh, you're not sure what their status is. May or may not have a learning disability. May or may not have a disability. Uh, but you know, a physically imposing adolescent who's 13 or 14 years old. Different set of rules, as we know, about constitutional rights, right? Parents have to be involved. The school district actually has a responsibility, as we've talked about, in the concept of in loco parentis, which is in lieu of the parent or in addition to the parent, that when you have a minor that's not in the possession of the parent is now in the possession of the government through public schools, the government has a much higher responsibility to protect that student and to make decisions about them, about their safety, education, well-being, than the college would have with a 21-year-old. Okay? So I think that's, that's the whole crux of this discussion. And, and then let me throw out a couple other hypotheticals, because you know I like to befuddle you with hypotheticals. Well, maybe befuddle's not fair. But challenge you. How about that? You mean, you mean attempt to befuddle? There you go. Okay, I'll go with the attempt. All right. But so here's here's the question of you know when we when we look at the effectiveness of and the need for police officers in schools, it's easy when you pick out an extreme case where there's been a clear danger and whether there was or wasn't a police officer on campus had an impact. But the but what gets more complicated is you, know, you and I both know that some schools by the nature of where they are, it could be a uh, inner city school 
without regard to discussing demographics, just an inner city school um, with a, a more challenging job market, a lot of other incidents going on. And the statistics on that school for a lot of things are likely going to be very, very different than a traditional suburban public school that is in nothing but a traditional bedroom community out in, let's say, the Midwest, right? And so I think your point that we need to be careful about using statistics is, is the effectiveness of a police officer in one of those schools different than the other? Is the need for police officers in one of those schools different than the other? And, and so I like your idea that this conversation is well-suited at the community level where you bring in the local police, the local school district, the local principal, the local teachers, groups, the parents' organization. And you say, how do we want to do this in our school? Yeah, no, great point, Mitch. And what I'll add to that is that there are also advocacy groups and, and concerned citizens that are welcome at the table, too, in this, in this discussion. So I, I think your point in terms of uh, defining the stakeholders, if you will, is a really good one because uh, there are a lot of stakeholders here. And I think we probably both agree that the overarching goal is to ensure that the learning environment is positive. And, and I recognize that that's a very general term, but I can't help but think about this topic uh, without standing in the shoes of the professors or the teachers, right? Because I know we want to focus on the students, but because I do teach and you teach, um, I do think about the learning environment from, from both teacher and student perspective. So as I think about school safety and the importance of having a safe learning environment, I think about it in terms of student and teacher. So what's interesting is I don't think we're uh, really approaching this all that differently than some of the same conversations you and I have had in when we're talking about general police and population interactions over the past couple of years. There have been plenty of stories that we've had to deal with that that came out of tragedies at both ends of the spectrum. And so the, the question that and the outcome on many of these things are two things. One, the one you just pointed out. The responsibility for the community, the, the non-police officer, you know, non-politician uh, community, the actual individuals who live there to organize and make be known what they want the policies of the community to be, and their employees, the police, city council, the department chairs, to carry out the policies and standards of the community. And so I'm a big fan of, you know, you don't just point fingers and blame, you step up and get engaged on a solution, right? So I don't think we disagree on any of that. So there's a personal community obligation in this. But let's get back to where we started this conversation is training, you know, and, and I don't know, do you think it's just that because you and I are engaged in education and as lawyers, we still have to do continuing legal education every single year You've talked about it in the district attorney's office. You continue to have internal training programs as issues come up. I, I don't think it's naive to say that that is the, the key link to make this work. Yeah, I agree with that, Mitch. And, and your reference to uh, suburban public schools versus, I think you referenced inner city schools, 
Um, and although we, you didn't want to get into um, great detail on demographics, but that dichotomy or that difference is really, really important. And I think it should become part of the training. What I can say is that uh, in the county of San Luis Obispo, there are different school districts, as is the case in, in all of the 58 counties. There's more than one school district within a county. And there are great differences between the individual schools in terms of the student population. So I think the training should include a focus on school-specific dynamics. And I can say in San Luis Obispo County that that is a focal point. Um, and, and perhaps the issue here, and I do agree with you, I think there is a need to focus squarely upon training and protocol. And it probably helps to think of the school resource officer uh, as a law enforcement officer up to the extent of highlighting the importance of training. Because as you and I both know, uh, sworn law enforcement officers are trained. There's a continuing training obligation uh, that must be done just as you and I as attorneys have that obligation. So. Great point. Yeah, and, and along that line, and they not to say, I, I should step in and say, it's not that they're not trained, and the, the police officers specifically that are not trained. It does look like, again, statistically, that about 1% of, if they looked nationally of the content of the police officer training, about 1% of it deals with children, adolescents, and, and this population. So, because on a general day-to-day basis, that makes perfectly good sense. Your patrolman on the street is not dealing with kids that often. Um, their focal point are on the more serious ends of, of public safety. And so just on the let day... Me, let me stop you, Mitch. I'm sorry to, to, to crash, but uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of serious crimes committed by minors and juveniles. So, Well, then maybe the 1% is a, a bigger question mark than we that we need to have if that's the case. Uh, so, yeah, but so let's say, what I'm saying, there's, let me talk about the law for just a minute because the question is, you know, we're opining about this and my folks might say, well, where's the legal part? All right. Well, let's go back a step and say that Congress has a role to play. Uh, there's an elementary and secondary education act, ESEA. Uh, sometimes also called the uh, ESSA, the Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, so this is federal legislation that's, that says that states receiving federal dollars to, towards their education, which is virtually every state, maybe every state, require states to have plans on a couple of things. Let's talk about that because it intersects with this conversation. Um, bullying. Right, and you and I have talked about bullying, and when I does bullying? I just made a note of that topic. <laughs> yeah, uh, bullying and harassment. When does bullying and harassment cross the line from, you know, acceptable adolescent behavior to possibly illegal behavior? Right. So we've got federal legislation that says schools should have better policies, clear policies about how to define those things. But what the information shows is they may not be taking it to this next step. And I think that's what you and I are talking about. Should Congress be looking at, possibly, 
the amendment of that federal legislation to say you shouldn't just have a policy on bullying. There ought to be a policy on if you're going to go the next step and, and use federal dollars to bring in police officers, that ought to include policies on how to not their behavior, their training. Yes. Okay. So good job. And that's, you set the table on introducing some important legal issues relative to the school resource officer uh, actually interceding and making contact with someone. And that's a really good segue. And, and I want to expand on that a little bit and at least tease it for now. Um, whenever there is contact between a, a school resource officer and a student in the form of an investigation, there is an automatic triggering of legal implications, legal rights. And, and that gives us an opportunity to expand on that discussion. And it gets into a juvenile's right um, if and when the juvenile is being questioned or potentially detained, because I think that's the intersection you wanted to bring up, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so, because um, there's a number of things we can talk about relative to bullying, because that does rise to the level of a crime. And when we return from the break, I'll introduce a couple of, of crimes that are statutorily defined, and uh, that'll lead us into a discussion of, of the need for training and protocol and various laws that are implicated, all right? So, when we come back, we'll expand on our discussion of school resource officers. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. 
The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are continuing our discussion of school resource officers. And before the break, Mitch, you had introduced uh, bullying. And I'm I'm quite sure that all of our listeners have heard about bullying and, and what it is. It has kind of a loose definition, but it actually does rise to the level of a crime that is statutorily defined in many, many states and jurisdictions. That's right. So, Stephen, walk us back through, because we did this on a prior show, and I think it fits again right here, that how do you come up to that line and decide whether behavior in a school is or isn't crossing the line of criminal behavior? And and you've done that before. Tell us, Dale, here are the steps to take, and here are the rights that then become assigned to the student once it's crossed that line. Yeah, you know, Mitch, what's interesting about uh, criminal acts that occur in a public school or whether conduct rises to the level of a crime, it's usually first observed by a fellow student or a teacher, you know. And if you look, I think, statistically uh, as to how crimes are first observed or how uh, misconduct is first observed, I guess we should start with misconduct and then see how it might ripen into a crime uh, because that leads us to the role of the school resource officer who very often intercedes as a result of something that's happened. So I think the way things unfold typically is that a student may well be a victim of some kind of bad act and that gets reported to the teacher who in turn very likely reports it to an administrator a principal, a dean. So there's a chain of communication there. And what's just happened is you now have a a witness pool, so to speak. And that's really how it gets started. Now, the question of when the school resource officer becomes involved is a really interesting one, Mitch. And I think this does dovetail into the issue of, of training and protocol. Because just as a law enforcement officer would need to have probable cause before approaching a suspect out on the street or in the field, if you will, the same rules should apply within a school. You know, I think there's a fine line between proactively interceding and interceding or approaching and investigating after someone's reported something. So I just wanted to kind of set it up that way. Well, and just walking through that, Stephen, raises in my mind the idea that Generally speaking, a teacher interceding in a student dispute, 
and let's say there's pushing and shoving going on and that it's been led up to threatening words and things that we've talked about that may be walking up the, the level to where it may cross a line and go into criminal behavior. So a teacher walking up and seeing that and interceding probably does not have in their mind the idea that these are potential witnesses, there might be physical evidence, a torn shirt, uh, you know, a ripped book, uh, all of those things. Um, a, that a, a, threatening, a threatening note. Oh, there you go. A threatening note, um, a text, an email. You know, that, that, that's just not the way the teachers are, are wired to think. That's not their training. And yet the, you bring in the point that, but a school, school resource officer who's brought in at the same time is going to have in the back of their mind their training to say, okay, this might just be settled down with a calming, some calming words. On the other hand, if it immediately starts marching up that ladder towards meeting the, the criteria of criminal behavior, then let's see, I need some names and phone numbers and addresses around here because this cluster of kids are all witnesses. No, that's right, Mitch, and that's, that's why I was introducing the stream of communication like that. And I, I did that intentionally because that's often how it percolates. And my purpose in doing that was to illustrate the importance of having a school resource officer who knows how to approach a student after being apprised of the information. And I, and I think that's directly on the front burner of our topic today in terms of the value of training and set protocol. Because once the school resource officer uh, goes into action and actively investigates, which as you well know, usually includes speaking with uh, the accused right, or the, the suspect, if you will, okay, the bad actor. Now you've got a scenario where constitutional rights are implicated in terms of that student's right. Does that student have the right to have a parent present, an administrator present? Should the principal be brought in at that point? Should the teacher be screened and separated? There's a lot of important issues there. Because at the end of the day, let's say it is determined that there's criminal behavior here, you're handed, you're, you're at the other end of the spectrum, right? You're the district attorney. You're the one who has to bring, make the decision. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You have to look at all the facts, all the evidence being brought. You, before it even gets to be a charge, you have to make a decision. Or Is the evidence there? Has all protocol been followed? Were uh, Miranda warnings given? All of those things that would just be standard review when the police bring a case to you is going to apply here as well, isn't That's it? absolutely right, Mitch, and that puts the spotlight directly on the school resource officer because that officer would very likely be the key or critical witness if a case gets filed. Um, in other words, if there's uh, a charge uh, filed against a student, and bullying is a great example, Mitch, <clears throat> Excuse me, because uh, bullying can ripen into uh, a, a threat, and that's statutorily defined in our penal code, section 422, if there's a written or threat um, of imminent danger or harm made to someone, and it causes someone to be in fear, you've got issues of potential assault, 
And of course, you've got you referenced a torn shirt, I think, in one of right. your your hypotheticals. That that raises an issue of battery. So, those are actual crimes that are codified and defined by statute. So, if there is a charge filed um, and an adjudication, because technically juvenile cases are really civil in nature, they're very different than adult cases. But if there are charges filed. That opens up uh, code sections and rules, uh, constitutional implica- implications and rules having to do with potential detention, statements that may have been gleaned uh, or obtained by the student. There's a number of things going on. And, and just to, I know I'm just picking one word out of it, but let's just talk about detention for a moment because you know, we talk about detention in school, okay. Most of us had experience with that, or I guess maybe I should speak for myself. You know, you, you there's an infraction at school, and you either go in early, you stay late, there's weekend school. You know, that's detention. You're required to show up. On the other hand, being detained by a police officer triggers an entirely different set of rules. Yes. And that then, whether you are being questioned or detained, whether you've got the freedom to go or you're being restricted in that freedom by a police officer, that's a threshold of certain constitutional rights, isn't it? It, it Yeah, absolutely. And, and that does speak to the importance of having school resource officers trained on the rules of engagement in terms of what, what qualifies as reasonable suspicion for purposes of a detention. Uh, school resource officers would need to know the laws of arrest Certainly those that are not sworn officers would need to know the laws of citizens' arrest, which give a right to uh, a citizen to actually request that law enforcement come out to investigate a case. And in a citizen's arrest scenario, it's the citizen that is listed formally as the arresting party. And there's a requirement that documentation be signed attesting to uh, the desire to place someone under arrest. So there's a lot going on. Uh, well, I was going to say, on the a lot going on part, I think that wrap, wraps us right back around to where we started, which is I think it's very easy when you see a story like this, which is what originally triggered my interest, where you have a local police chief that says, I'd like to get a $3 million grant to bring school resource officers back into our public schools. And it's easy to say, oh, how hard could this decision be? Of course, let's just do it. And then what you and I have now spent the last hour doing is saying there's a lot more to it that the community ought to be committing to than just saying, oh, yeah, give us three million bucks and let's hire some folks with badges and guns to stand around in the schools. All of these complications to have it work well and effective bring additional responsibilities, I think, to the school district, to the police department that's providing the officers to the school faculty to the principals to the parent groups i mean that's that's what i think is the lesson here that that whether you decide to do it or not ought to come packaged with the agreement that you're going to do all of these things to do it right. I, you know, Mitch, I think that's absolutely right. And as is almost always the case when it comes to grant monies or expenditures, a lot of people chime in, which makes me think about another topic we've had and discussions about, and that is the idea of standing or who has a right to contest this. Oh, and it, yeah. it really is a pretty broad canvas, isn't it? Yeah, 
It's everybody I've just listed, plus their unions in some cases, plus the PTA in some communities, plus the police. When I say unions, it's the police officer unions. It can be the teachers unions. I mean, yeah, you're right. They're, we're going to have to save that one for another day. Uh, let, let me wrap up here by just saying here are some of the suggestions that have been published as far as expanding this responsibility into training. And uh, there's, there are some national standards set up by the National Association of School Resource Officers. And you know what they're recommending is that they've got, that they've identified that there are college courses that could be taken and are set up as part of the minimum standards for SROs. There are credit uh, certificate programs that could be set up, that are set up, that could be done that deal with multicultural issues, uh, uh, recognizing disability, dealing with adolescents. There's a 40-hour basic SRO training program. There are advanced training programs that they've developed. There's the same thing you and I talked about, Stephen, about continuing education that would allow SROs to be required to go every single year for updates or in one case, they, there's a proposal that there be 60 hours of continuing education every five years. Uh, and then to, to bring it to the local level, the recommendation is that schools ought to have a contract with the SROs that outline many of the things you and I just talked about. Uh, what is the expected behavior and protocol when a school resource officer and a teacher both arrive at the same incident, who has priority? Yeah, and, and Mitch, you know, I think the issue of consistency is very, very important, that that it, it be handled consistently, that protocols are the same across the board. That's right, and then they even go further, because it's, again, it's not just putting the burden on the SRO. They said that there ought to be a school discipline uh, committee or a school crisis committee, and that committee ought to have administrators, faculty, students, parents, again, that broad engagement across all the affected parties uh, that should be meeting and dealing with setting policies, addressing concerns, you know, updating the policies when things uh, come about. And then finally, and I know you'll like this, but it's uh, just what you said. Ultimately, the whole issue is about positive discipline, motivation, accountability, and teaching, and that it ought to all be wrapped up to the primary goal of the school, which are those principal foundations. All right. Touche. Good, good. (laughs) Good discussion, Mitch. Well, thanks, Stephen. Another great show. Let me remind everyone that you can hear an archive of today's show at voiceamerica.com business channel under Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can also go to our wagnerandwinnick.com webpage to hear this show and other previous shows. As we suggest to you every single week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America Business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 